The next thing I, I want that I want to share with you from the Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning is a prayer. It is a prayer by someone named Nikos Kazantzakis. It says, I am a bow on your hands, Lord. Draw me, lest I rot. Do not overdraw me, Lord. I shall break. Overdraw me, Lord, and who cares if I break? So this metaphor of being a bow on the Lord's hands, that symbolizes being surrendered to the will of the Lord and letting the Lord work in your life. So then, when it says, do not overdraw me, Lord, I shall break. That is the person who is praying this, expressing their fear. Their fear of being overwhelmed by the Lord, by the Lord asking too much of them, by not by their fear that they won't be able to do what the Lord asks of them. That God will shake up their life too much. But then the person who is praying has a realization. He stops and he realizes, wait, actually, do overdraw me, Lord, and who cares if I break? He realizes that he doesn't have to be afraid of the Lord asking too much of him because he knows that the Lord will only ask the things that are part of his will, the things that are meant to happen, the things that he will enable us to do and give us the power to do. The person who is praying remembers that they don't need to be afraid. They want to confront this face on. They don't want to let fear control their relationship with the Lord. The next passage that I want to share is a commentary on God's forgiveness. And it's also about um, Brendan Brendan Manning's thoughts on the prodigal son story. So Brendan Manning has this idea of something that the prodigal son's father could have said. He could have said, Hush, child. I don't need to know where you've been or what you've been up to. The gospel of grace announces forgiveness precedes 
repentance. The sinner is accepted before he pleads for mercy. It is already granted. He need only receive it. Total amnesty, gratuitous pardon. God alone can make forgiveness something glorious to remember. He's so glad to absolve us that those who've afforded him that joy feel not like disagreeable, troublesome pests, but like pampered children, understood and heartened, pleasing and useful to him, and infinitely better than they thought. Oh, happy fault, they could cry, if we weren't sinners and didn't need pardon more than bread, we'd have no way of knowing how deep God's love is. When the prodigal son limped home from his lengthy binge of waste and wandering, boozing and womanizing, his motives were mixed at best. He said to himself, How many of my father's hired men have all the food they want and more, and here am I dying of hunger? I will leave this place and go to my father. The ragamuffin's stomach was not churning with compunction because he had broken his father's heart. He stumbled home simply to survive. So my personal commentary on this passage, what I realized when I first read through this was just the highlights of this story that I had never noticed before. You know, I had never thought of it in this way that Brennan Manning describes about forgiveness preceding repentance. You know, like he said, when the prodigal son got there, the father just hugged him and threw a party for him. He didn't ask his son to give an explanation of where he had been or what he had been doing. He didn't ask for an apology. He simply forgave him right then and there. You know, and I was blown away. I couldn't imagine God being like that. I've always been taught that we need to confess our sins for God to forgive us. And I do believe that confessing our sins to God is a good thing. But the reality is, he has already forgiven us. Even before we confess our sins, he has already forgiven us. Because when we accepted his sacrifice on the cross, we were forgiven for everything that we had ever done and and everything that we will ever do. If I was the prodigal son in this moment, I would be ready. I would be ready with a big, long explanation and apology for God. But, and when, and to see God not even ask that of me, I would be so surprised and so amazed 
that God loves me so much that the only thing he is concerned with is how happy he is to see me again. Isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever heard? It is for me. And then I like I like this phrase that was in this passage. The the phrase that said, "Oh happy fault." Right? That's a paradox. How can a fault be happy? But it's it's talking about you know, if if we never sinned, then we would never be able to experience the forgiveness of God. It's only because we sin that we actually get to experience the forgiveness of God. That's the one good thing about sin. And you know, I I I could never have imagined saying this before that there was anything good about sin. But the reality is that there is. There is something good about sin and that is because if we weren't sinners, we would never fully understand God's love through his forgiveness. And that and that is so so beautiful i mean you know a different you know personally um different times i've had of confession and repentance before god have been some of the most beautiful and amazing experiences of my entire life right and those amazing experiences only came about because I'm a sinner. And then we move on to the prodigal son's mixed motives, right? He didn't even come back out of sorrow. He wasn't even sorry when he came back. He only came back, you can see in Luke 15, it's saying, how many of my father's hired men have all the food they want and more, and here am I dying of hunger. I will leave this place and go to my father. He came back to his father because he was starving and didn't have any food, and he knew that his father had food. He came back because he was hungry. He came back home because he didn't want to die of starvation. That's a pretty mixed motive, if you ask me. You know? He only cared about food. He didn't care about what he had done to his father. But the father still accepts him. The father still does not demand an apology.
as I was praying over this passage after the first time I read it, a word that the Holy Spirit gave to me was this. He said, because the price is already paid, I can be as crazy and extend as much grace as I want. Because the price is already paid, I can be as crazy and extend as much grace as I want. Isn't that beautiful? Several paragraphs later, uh, Brendan Manning writes, We don't have to be shredded with sorrow or crushed with contrition. And then, even if we come back because we couldn't make it on our own, God will welcome us. So those two sentences right there blew my mind. Again, I have this idea of repentance as being truly sorry before God. And we should be. We should be truly sorry before God. But sometimes we're not. And this is saying that that's okay too. Even if we're not as sorry as we should be, God still forgives us. He still forgives us. Because he forgave everything the minute that we accepted his sacrifice for us on the cross. And when we sin, when we sin, and maybe um, after we commit a specific sin, maybe we don't even apologize. Um... Maybe we we just pray about something completely unrelated. Or maybe we turn away from that sin. We just turn away from it but don't actually confess it or ask to or ask repentance before God right so we've we've committed a sin and you know maybe we're and like I said maybe we're just praying about something else entirely right after we sin or maybe we just 
reject that sin and move on with our day without saying anything to God. Right? Those are two things that are very different than actually repenting before God of our sin. But you see, if we turn away from our sin without repenting, without praying um, sorrow before God, we're still turning away from that sin. Yes, it's an alternative motive that's not as good of the, of the motive as I've sinned before God and I'm sorry. Maybe it's just simply the motive, I don't like how this makes me feel. Or, this makes me feel more depressed. Or, this is convoluting my relationship with my best friend. Maybe you just don't like, simply don't like the consequences and you can't survive with those consequences. And maybe that's your motivation for turning away from that sin. Sure, that's not the best motivation, but God still accepts that. God still accepts that. God still welcomes us back. He will always welcome us back, no matter what our motives are. The next thing that I want to deal with is the purpose of life. Ooh, that's a big existential question, isn't it? But no, I I love how Brennan Manning attempts to tackle this huge question that everybody thinks about at some point in their life. Manning says, is life absurd Or does it have a purpose? Jesus replies that not only do our lives have purpose, but God has directly intervened in human affairs to make abundantly clear what that purpose is. In the end, everything will be all right. Nothing can harm you permanently. No loss is lasting, no defeat more than transitory, no disappointment is conclusive. Wow, so when I read that, it made me think a lot about my depression. When I'm depressed, Even though I'm a Christian, even though I do know what the purpose of our lives are as Christians, I can still sometimes find myself wondering, 
Is life absurd? What's the meaning of life? It all seems pointless. But when I'm having those depressive episodes, I do have to remember that whatever is depressing in my life, whatever hard things are happening right now, is not eternal. God is who is eternal. Love is what is eternal. Joy is what is eternal. Right? As Christians, we have the ultimate hope that every single problem is only temporary. That we truly do, that truly, you know, every single one of our problems does have a happy ending. You know, there's this saying that um, life doesn't always have a happy ending. But as Christians, that's not true. Our life does have a happy ending. And that happy ending is our eternal life in heaven. Because of the anxiety that I struggle with, so often I have hard, really hard questions that I obsess over and that I worry about. And oftentimes when I pray to God and ask him these questions, he just fills me with a sense of peace. And I think, why are you just giving me peace? That's wonderful, but why aren't you answering my question, God? But see, that's the thing. That peace is the answer. The answer is that this question is not important. You do not need to be worrying about this. You need to be at peace in me. That's the answer. And so... Um, the next passage that I want to share really is about that entire phenomenon, right? The Pharisees were, were really good at obsessing and worrying about very unimportant things. And when Christ didn't answer their questions directly... They wondered why. So, here's the passage. It says, Once again, Jesus responded that he did not come to discuss the law, nor to challenge the Roman Empire. He had come to herald the good news that the really real is love and to invite men and women to a joyous response to that love. 
Sober, hard-headed, realistic critics simply shook their heads. Why doesn't he address the critical questions? See, I think the reason why Jesus didn't address the critical, the quote-unquote critical questions is because they weren't critical questions. All of these questions, um, like Manning, like Brendan Manning was talking about, about um, the law and overthrowing the Roman Empire, Jesus didn't answer those questions because they were, in, they were not important. They were not what he wanted his people to focus on. He wanted his people, he wanted his people to focus on love. Because that's what, he, that's what he said was the most important thing. already expressed to you that I struggle with anxiety and with depression. So obviously I'm always looking for healing in those areas in my life. I'm looking for healing and rejuvenation. So the next passage that I want to share with you talks about what uh, talks about what the first step towards rejuvenation is. And it is very powerful. It says, the first step toward rejuvenation begins with accepting where you are and exposing your poverty, frailty, and emptiness to the love that is everything. Don't try to feel anything, think anything, or do anything. my own life I've definitely found that to be true if I'm if I'm trying to change if I'm trying to walk into into healing my first step has to be accepting myself where I am and it has to be going before God and it has to be letting that love it has to be letting that love be what heals me If I try to start with change before I accept where I'm at, if I try to be healed before I accept where I'm at, that doesn't that doesn't work very well because that gives into perfectionism and striving and that's exhausting. And that that just creates more frustration. There has to be a starting point of acceptance of myself, where I'm at. 
Next, I'm going to share with you a passage from Hosea. It's Hosea 11. Hosea 11, verses 1, 3 through 4, and 8 through 9. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, who took them in my arms. I drew them with human cords, with bands of love. I fostered them like one who raises an infant to his cheeks. Yet though I stooped to feed my child, they did not know that I was their healer. How could I give you up, O Ephraim, or deliver you up, O Israel? How could I treat you as Adma, or make you like Zeboam? My heart is overwhelmed, my pity is stirred. I will not give vent to my blazing anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One present among you. I will not let the flames consume you. Something that I did um, when I read this passage was I replaced the words Israel and my son and Ephraim for my name. And what I realized through doing that is this passage describes the experience of God in my life. I've been through some really hard things in my life. I went through abuse as a child. But God was always with me through it all. Even before I really knew who God was, he was always there looking out for me. And so I can really relate with uh, when it says, yet though I stooped to feed my child, they did not know that I was healer, that I was their healer. So right, when, it was, when it's talking about God um, teaching to walk, taking them in their arms, and uh, fostering them, and feeding them, and healing them, right? I can see myself as a little child and God doing all of that work of raising me behind the scenes even before before I knew him. As a little child, all I can see is all of this pain and all of this suffering. God's right there. He's right there 
making sure that I survive. He's right there as my real father. I love how it uses the word fostered. It says, I fostered them. Right? So, I fostered them like one who raises an infant to his cheeks. Yet though I stooped to feed my child, they did not know that I was their healer. So before I knew God, and while God was working behind the scenes in my life to make sure that I survived, he was fostering me. I didn't know him yet, so I wasn't adopted by him yet, but he was fostering me. He says he will not destroy me. He says he will not let the flames consume me. He says his heart is overwhelmed and his pity is stirred. He saw me as a little child being abused. And he chose to foster me until the day that I would know him and be adopted as his child. He chose to not let the abuse consume me. He chose to commit to making sure that I survived. And so for me, this Hosea 11, I hold so dear to my heart in a deeply personal way in my life. In Hosea 2, Hosea 2, verses 14 through 15, it says, But look, I am going to seduce her and lead her into the desert and speak to her heart. There I shall give her back her vineyards and make the veil of Achor a gateway of hope. There she will respond as when she was young, as on the day when she came up from Egypt. So again, in these verses, I see hope for myself. It's not only talking about the Israelites, but it also applies to my life. I love how it shows him giving back her vineyards. I think I see that as giving back what she lost, giving back what the vineyards that Israel lost. So in my own life, my childhood was filled with a lot of loss and pain I lost a lot of my childhood. 
But it says that God is going to give back to me what I lost. God is going to redeem my life from that scared little girl into the beautiful woman that he has created me to be from the very beginning. He is going to give me back the vineyards that I lost. It says he is going to make a gateway of hope. And in this gateway of hope, I will respond as the day when I was set free, right? So here in Israel's history, it's talking about these two major moments, right? This first one is when God, the first milestone moment is when God set is the Israelites free from Egypt. That's the first one. And the second one is this day that he's restoring back her vineyards. He's restoring back to Israel what was lost. So for me, instead of being freed from Egypt, I was freed from an abusive childhood. The day that I left home was that big milestone day number one for me, the day that I was delivered from abuse. My second milestone moment is going to be the day when God restores back to me what was lost. Now, ever since the day that I was freed from abuse, he has been restoring back to me continually more and more and more of what was lost. But I truly do believe that a day will come when everything will have been restored. And what that means to me is that there will come a day when my recovery from the abuse will be complete. That I will be fully recovered from the abuse. Now, it's uh, very important for, for me to share that I don't believe that that is something that is guaranteed just based upon what the Bible says. The Bible does say that God redeems, but it never promises full redemption until the day that we get to heaven. But there are some things that God will choose to heal while we're still on this earth. And for me, I believe that one of those things that God is going to choose to um, completely heal for me while I'm on this earth is the abuse. The 
um, the psychological impact of the abuse. And the reason why I believe that is I did receive a specific word from the Holy Spirit assuring me that. The Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and, and um, showed me that there, that there will come a day when I will be completely healed from the psychological impact of the abuse. And so that is what helps me press on. That is what gives me hope. <laughs> so back to the passage, that's, that's what I see um, when it talks about giving Israel back what was lost. I am reminded of the fact that the Lord will give back to me what was lost and will redeem my life. And that my two milestone days are number one, not when I was delivered from Egypt, but when I, the day that I was delivered from the abuse. And it won't be... And then the second milestone day is not the day that vineyards will be returned to me, but the day that the psychological impact of the abuse will be taken away. And that full healing will come to me. And that my life my life without abuse is what will be returned to me.